Welcome back, listeners, to season four of the Bulldog Educator. We're excited as we enter in this season, and we hope that you enjoyed our first episode. And now we're moving on into our other episodes for this season. We'll continue to provide you episodes every other week up until December. And so we hope that you'll listen. And in the the meantime, you can also go back to previous episodes by going to your favorite podcast catcher and looking up the Bulldog Educator. As always, enjoy the episode. Welcome, welcome back to the Bulldog Educator Podcast, and welcome to episode four of season four of the Bulldog Educator Podcast. This podcast content is developed through a collaboration between the co-hosts, Matt Kasten, yours truly, and Kirsten Wilson, and input from our listeners just like you. Hope y'all are doing well. We're so glad to have you, and we're really excited for today and our episode with Jeffrey Veal. Yes. So Jeffrey and I first met in, I think it was 2022, which was only last year, but feels like, was it 2022? Hang on. No, was it? I think it was two years ago, 2021, right? Man, you know what time is just, <laughs> right. It was 2021, man, 2021. Last time we saw each other was last year, but we met in 2021. Um, I was part of the 2021-2022 cohort for the Rural School Leadership Academy which is a very unique training program for rural educators and educated leaders provided by Teach for America. And y'all, it was a blast. Even though it was hard work and we learned a lot, it was a lot of fun. Jeffrey always kept us on track, always kept us focused and always kept us laughing, which I really appreciate. (laughs) And actually I have to shout you out, man, because actually, um, although we were on Zoom, I feel like you did an excellent job of making sure that the cohort felt like a community. Uh, and without further ado, Jeffrey, if you could please tell us, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Yep. Hello, everyone. My name is Jeffrey Deal Jr. Pronouns are he, him, his. I am originally from a rural area um, called Lewiston, North Carolina, which is the eastern part of North Carolina. Grew up there, um, stayed there all of my life, went to public school there, K through 12. Um, and it was when I went to college that For me, I began to understand the area in which I grew up, but also the disparities that existed in education. Um, One day when I was in class at um, UNC Chapel Hill, I was having conversations with my peers. and I was like, I cannot relate to the things that you all are saying. So they were telling me they had gone abroad six times. And like, I didn't even know what the word abroad meant. They were saying I had eight AP classes in high school. Like I passed all of them. So I came into college with college credit. And in my high school, we had four um, and nobody ever passed those AP classes. So at that point, I began to just really understand that there's something happening. Like there is something that's wrong because it didn't make sense that a school that is literally two hours down the road, kids are having a very different experience um, than mine. And honestly, education was something that I was always passionate about. Although it was nothing that my parents or family pushed on me as a career. Um, growing up, uh, particularly for myself in a rural community, I was always told, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a lawyer. Although most of the things that I did align with education, um, as I was going through school, I just did that doctor-lawyer track. So those that is what I was telling myself. I did the summer internships at the hospitals. Like I was doing everything to prepare myself um, to be that. 
And a part of the reason when I think back that I initially didn't pursue education as a career was because of the value of the profession of education where I grew up. Not necessarily the value of education, the value of the profession. Um, one, I didn't see men in education. I didn't see black men in education. Um, teachers weren't making money. So like, how was I to survive? Um, but I had a turning point. The summer after my junior year of college, um, I had an opportunity to go on a trip. So in college, I was an education policy major. Um, honestly, I was education policy because I was like, I want to go the rich route in the education field. And then I did a double minor in social and economic justice and um, social entrepreneurship. And we had to do an internship between our junior and senior year for my social entrepreneurship minor. And I had two options. One, I could go work um, in Beijing, China for a startup company. Or the second, I could go work for an orphanage in Uganda. Long story short, um, I decided to go work for an orphanage in Uganda where I was there for two months and I taught fourth and fifth grade math. And that experience is literally why, why I do what I do. One day while I was teaching, a girl who wasn't even in my classroom came to me and gave me a letter. And the letter was actually addressed to my mom. And it read, thank you very much for sending your son to Uganda. He is the one who gives us hope and we be with joy in our hearts. And that was the turning point for me. One, I had only been here two to three days. Uh, I'm also not sure why this student wasn't in her classroom, but I let it slide. Um, and she wasn't even in my class. She wasn't a student of mine. I was born in this area. And I was like, wow, if I can have this much of an impact in an area that's not mine, imagine the impact that I could have back in the States. And for me, for her to use the word hope and what often looks and feels like a hopeless situation, just made me rethink things. So my senior year, I go back to Carolina. I was like, I have to teach. I want to do direct work within education. Um, it was on Facebook. And at that time, Teach for America was a very um, popular employer at UNC Chapel Hill. So I was on Facebook. Everybody's network said Teach for America, UNC. Uh, so I researched what Teach for America was and figured out that it was an alternative way for me to do uh, what I knew that I was destined to do all along. So after college, I moved to Memphis, Tennessee, where I taught third grade math. Um, while in Memphis, um, co-founded a K-8 public charter school that I led for six years. And most recently, um, I guess it's not really recent anymore because this is my third year on staff now. Um, I'm at Teach for America, where I serve as the managing director of alumni program and leadership experiences. Well, first of all, Jeffrey, as a former third grade math teacher, I feel you. Oh, yeah. Third grade. And yeah. I honestly did not want third grade. And I was like, I want like secondary math. But once I got in the classroom, I was like, I wouldn't have it any other way. Third grade is the best grade. I know I'm biased, but it's the best grade. Oh, no, I loved it. <laughs> I've, I've spent a lot of time in different grades, but third grade is where I've, I've camped out the most. And I've taught all of the subjects. And then I've also taught math and science in third grade. And mm -hmm. um, as you well know, um, we are the uh, foundation of fractions in third grade. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I love fractions. So I, I do use too. The and the starbursts and the fruit loops, the yes. colors and all of that. Yes. So um, that that's awesome. My curiosity is that um, as you continued your pursuit, what kept you in education? Hmm. What? kept me and I guess what keeps me is not wanting kids to experience what I felt 
Um, and when I think back to how I felt, like I didn't feel wrong when I was going to school. It was when I left that I began to realize that not everybody was having access um, to the education that they deserve. Um, so what keeps me going is making sure that like I'm changing the narrative for kids who grew up in communities like me, kids who don't grow up in communities like me. What keeps me going is going back to the school that I led um, last week and seeing a parent come up to me and like immediately burst out into tears and like just tells me how much she appreciated me as a school leader. What keeps me going was going back to that same school um, and having an eighth grader come to me and say like, Mr. Bill, like you need to come back. And I was like, come back for what? Because at this point, uh, our school is K-8 and they're about to go to high school next. So I was like, come back for what? If I come back, like you're gonna leave. They was like, but still you need to come back. So just knowing that like the impact that you're having on people, like is great that they appreciate it, that they see the work that you're doing. Um, it keeps me going, it keeps me going. I absolutely love that. And um, that's one of the things as uh, Matthew and I have talked, how important it is to have men in education, specifically black men that have that positive role model. And that's not just for other black boys, but that is, I think that it's important to have them so we all can see yep. black men in positions yep. of authority and positivity. Um, and so, because that shame, that changes the perception of children who don't grow up around black men as well as it supports those children that look like you. Um, and I think sometimes people don't understand that representation is important for all people yep. so that we can appreciate and understand and have more compassion and empathy for those around us. So just thank you for continuing to do what you do. And I know that you've had people tell you that, but I wanted to tell you as well. I appreciate it. Yeah. So Matt, you want to move on to the next question? Yes. And actually that was the perfect segue. Um, you, you, you took the words out of my mouth. Like I also want to thank Jeffrey just for being the person you are, you know, to me personally, because when, you know, when I joined RSLA, um, and I saw you, I was like, okay, all right, this, you know, let's do this. So it, it was great. Again, that representation, like Kirsten said, not just for students, but for other black men in education. Um, it's, you know, we're, we're a bit of a rarity. So it was, it was nice to see you and, you know, keep in touch with you. We goes into this next question, which is with your role with RSLA or TFA, I should say, uh, you said you've been in there for three years. And so can you tell us a bit, a bit more about your role and specifically what it's like convening and kind of helping to train um, or facilitate for uh, folks in education in rural areas all across the nation? Yep. So within my role, um, long title. So my title is again, Managing Director of Alumni Program and Leadership Experiences, which is a fancy long title for saying that I design, plan, and execute live and virtual learning experiences for aspiring and current school and system leaders. So my team does that in various ways through various different programs, um, such as our flagship program, the Rural School Leadership Academy. We have a program called the Aspiring Latinx Leadership Institute. Um, we support our annual School Leaders of Color Conference. So we do it in various different ways, focus on various different audiences, uh, particularly for my Rural School Leadership Academy. What is it like um, bringing people together? It is like love. Um, 
the Rural School Leadership Academy holds a special place in my heart because that's where I grew up. And when I think about when I left college, I had a choice to make. Like, do I want to go and teach in a rural community? Do I want to go back to the community in which I grew up? Do I want to go to a more urban, urban community? And I decided to go to Memphis. And a part of me going to Memphis was because I just wanted a different experience. Like I grew up in Eastern North Carolina, small town, like everybody goes to the same church, like like-minded values. And then I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which was a very diverse institution that made me question things that I had learned as a child. Um, and then I went to Memphis, which for me was like a major city. Like when you grew up in Eastern North Carolina, you go to Memphis, it's like moving to New York. Um, so I did that route to have those very different experiences to make me more well-rounded. And what I wasn't doing was really having an impact in an area in which I grew up or areas like where I grew up. Um, so when I joined the team three years ago, that was like, oh, we have this Rural School Leadership Academy program that you can be a part of. I'm like, yes. Yep. So I truly love the work that I do with our rural school leaders because I've never lived in a rural community as an adult. And I've always thought about how I could make an impact in areas um, in which I grew up. So it's something that I take a lot of pride in. Um, I love bringing people together um, across America in rural communities. I love when they get together. I like to see the collaboration. I like to see the light bulb moments. I like for, I like seeing when people share best practices around things that are working in their communities and then people take it back to their communities and report back to say like, hey, this worked. Um, and I just think the Rural School Leadership Academy is just a unique space because it's a space that I don't think exists in a lot of places. When we think about where people are putting money at in terms of PD, they're in those urban districts uh, or they are in districts that have the funds to pay for um, this high quality PD. So a gap that we're feeling with this is truly providing high quality PD um, to people who likely may not get it otherwise and no fault of their own, but just the capacity um, of their district. And also in thinking about just district capacities, when we think about the work of rural communities, educators are wearing a lot of different hats. Like there are so many pieces that people are dealing with. So sometimes what may be a priority for me in Memphis may not be a priority for somebody in Eastern North Carolina because they may be thinking about supporting the mental health needs of a student or supporting like the behavior needs of students or helping a teacher get adjusted to like being in a rural community where like that PD um, may fall like to the backside. Um, also just thinking about like this cognitive load of, uh, of, of educators. So when you, one, we are all educators and like being an educator like is a heavy load. Um, and then when you introduce sometimes professional development in communities, um, in rural communities, it makes people feel as if they are not doing enough um, versus you're doing great and like, I want you to be better. Um, so I think we have the capacity kind of like as a neutral agency to kind of like break that stereotype to let people know that, hey, we're supporting you um, because we know you are great and because we want you to be greater for yourself um, and those that you're working for. And then I think I may have said this already. The last piece is like the funding piece of it. This Rural School Leadership Academy is a free program. We don't ask anything from participants. 
We don't ask anything from districts and we provide a year long experience um, both in person um, and both virtually. So we convene our leaders at the beginning of the summer um, this past year, or I guess this year, we convene our leaders in Albuquerque, New Mexico for about five days. So they're with us there, um, engaging in high quality PD, building a community with each other. Um, and then we went to our virtual cycle that is about to kick off next week. Um, and then over the next couple of months, every participant will get to go on a rural school community visit where we have four to five visits set up and people can say, I want to go to this community to learn about the incredible work happening at this school, fully funded, we pay for it. We have a partnership with Harvard Graduate School of Education where people can get an optional add-on certificate. Um, and then we're gonna close out our time um, of RSLA this year in Lindsay, California, uh, visiting um, an amazing school out there um, and then just wrapping up with some of our faculty members. Um, so again, like PD isn't cheap and we recognize that rural communities um, and I'm, I wouldn't necessarily say they may not have the money for PD, but based off of the needs of that district, they may be reallocating that money somewhere else that may um, be yielding greater results for them. I just, I like how you brought up how much is focused on urban PD um, mm -hmm. versus rural PD and support. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is a, a constant conversation that I have with my um, Association of Supervision and Curriculum Development people um, as we work with schools is that 65% of our schools in our country are considered rural, yet mm -hmm. we focus on the other 35%. Mm -hmm. And um, with, with things evolving with the workplace and things like that, kids can, kids can stay at home and work and make job and, and make an income now because of rural or not rural, but remote work if we are able to provide them the academics that allow them to to build the skills so that they can continue to live in in their communities their rural communities that they grew up in um, and so to me when you said that i was thinking about how that is and that kind of leads me to question from your experience working with rural educators what are some of the barriers that rural educators face and what are some of the unique strengths and talents you've seen in rural educators? Because I think that's another thing that we don't realize is how many talents rural yep. educators come to the table with, yep. um, you know, and it's like, oh, you were a teacher in a school and you taught math. Yeah, but I was the secondary math teacher. Yep. And nobody yep. that's ever been in a rural education situation truly mm -hmm. understands the scope of talent that they yeah. to pull that off. So I'd love for you to talk about that. Yeah, thank you for that question. And just thank you also for asking about the special talents because I feel like rural educators are some of our most talented people out in this education space. Uh, when I think about some of the barriers to um, just rural education, I'm just gonna focus on it through like the system lens. Um, one being staff recruitment and retention from interventions assistant to teacher to school leader. Like it is a challenge getting people to go to rural communities for various different reasons. And I even think back to myself, when I applied for Teach for America at that time, I think there were 43 regions where you could rank where you could go. Um, and honestly, no region on my list was a rural region. And a part of that was because of pay. Like I'm fresh out of college, like I'm making a living for myself. Um, thankfully, like I didn't have student loans, but I know some people come out of college 
having to pay back student loans. Some people may have a family that they're supporting. Um, so it's hard to recruit people there and it's hard to keep people there because you're not paying them what they need um, to live um, a positive life. I also think about like just opportunity for growth as well on the recruitment and retention. When I think about a lot of teachers wanted to go into that space, I think there are some people who go in and like, I want to be a career teacher. Then there are some people who go into the work is like, I'm going to start off being a teacher, but like I want to increase my level of responsibility year after year. And sometimes in our rural areas, there's not opportunities um, to do that. I also think about just access when it comes to recruiting people to an area, like what is around to keep people engaged? Is there an art scene? Is there an entertainment scene? Like what does food look like? I'm a foodie, so like food was a lot for me when I moved to Memphis. Like Memphis is known for food, so that's also one of the reasons why I went to Memphis. Um, so I think like that is one like barrier, just getting people to come and getting people to stay because of just competition outside, um, I kind of already mentioned like the lack of professional development, um, but I also add like just lack of resources. Um, our rural areas aren't staffed in terms of resources as heavily as a lot of our other um, districts. Um, and then the last thing I would say is just being able to support like behavior and mental health needs of everyone. So like students, school staff, parents, like the community at large, um, this is something that we typically don't talk about in our rural communities and more particularly in rural communities that are heavily black. Like mental health is a topic often marked by stigma and denial. Um, and we just let it go to the wayside. But what we have to realize is that how people show up influences everything that happens in that person's life. Um, so I'm proud to say that I've noticed some of our rural districts and particularly my community that are doing a lot as it relates to addressing the mental health needs of everyone. So for example, um, in my hometown, they just hired a new football coach who literally like redesigned the entire football program. But one thing that like really stood out to me is that he has a mental health coach on the football team, like a full-time mental health coach to address the needs of what the players are facing. And it's something that is celebrated. It's not like, oh, they have a mental health coach on the football team. Like what's going on with the football team? It's like, we want our people to be fully well um, so that, that when they're on the field, they can give their all, but also when they're off the field, they can give their all. Um, in terms of some of the special talents I've seen in rural educators, one I would just say name that the benefit of just being in a rural community is how tight knit the community is. Like it just like has this family friendly feel. Um, and I tell this story all the time to tell people how small my town was. Like the town that I grew up in um, is a one stoplight type town. Everybody went to the same high school. Most people went to the same church. Like you saw each other often. Um, to the point that if I was driving home from school and I was speeding, my mom would know that I was speeding before I got home from school. And when you think back to that, you're like, mm -mm, I don't like this. Like everybody's in my business, but like as an adult, it was community ownership. Like we all care about everything. Um, and in particular, like I think back to my fifth grade teacher. My fifth grade teacher, um, now that I've done my math, she was actually young when I was a teacher. I think it was maybe her third year teaching. Uh, my 12th grade year, she was my high school assistant principal. And my 12th grade year of high school, when I was driving to school, I got in a very bad car accident where I sold up my car, 
I didn't go to school that day. Um, and that evening, my old fifth grade teacher who was then my AP in high school, like literally came to my house, like to check on me, like to see how I was doing. Um, so when I think about like just the special talent of rural educators, it's like, it's a community feel like everybody cares about everybody. Um, another special talent is just resilience. I have never seen educators more resilient than our rural educators. Like they are literally doing what they can with what they have, wherever they are. Um, like they're making it work. Um, and then I think the third thing is that I think rural communities understand that the world is changing and having worked in an urban district, sometimes I don't think our urban districts understand this, but our rural, com rural communities generally have been receptive um, as they can to the changes within reason. Um, so for example, like increasing access to technology or increasing um, the number of honors and advanced level courses partnerships with local community colleges and state universities. Um, if there is an after-school parent engagement event, partnering with the local companies or businesses to provide like food or support services. Um, so I would say those are probably three of like the many special talents that I see like just in the rural education space. That's awesome, Jeffrey. I, I'm so glad you, you mentioned those talents. Um, and what you said about, you know, one of the barriers was, you know, access to PD. And I, I think you're 100% right. And what you were saying actually reminded me of an experience I had at RSLA. And I have to share this because you and the rest of the team there did an excellent job of making sure that the participants, you know, collaborated and that we engaged with each other and we, we shared stories. And then it dawned on me that a lot of rural communities have a deep culture of storytelling. Yep. And then I was like, wait a minute, did they just use storytelling as like a powerful piece for PD? Because I'm remembering how many ideas yep. were exchanged. You were talking about, you know, just being in a space where you can share about what, what happened at your school and how someone may have handled a similar situation or the fact that, oh my gosh, we've never experienced this. We should probably get ready for it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so that was really powerful. Um, there was one participant, she was a teacher in Colorado, and I forget the name of the town, but it was, a, it was a small town that used to be a mining town. And now the mining industry is kind of uh, gone by the wayside. You know, the town is losing population and students are leaving. And so it's really hard to, as you mentioned, retain folks, recruit teachers, right? And also it's hard to keep up that morale among students because they want to graduate and leave that town as soon as possible. And the teacher that taught there was telling me about um, how she wanted to use the history of that mining town as a way to help students write narratives and that she wanted to partner with like a local museum and showcase their work. So I'm like, that is such a great idea and way to use what the community has, that story to inspire students and, you know, bring more attention. So um, I, I really like the idea of storytelling as a part of professional development. Uh, but before I get on my soapbox too much, uh, you mentioned that, I mean, well, we know that educating isn't easy in any environment. And you kind of mentioned some of the unique challenges that rural educators uh, kind of face. Uh, in your role with TFA, how do you help educators kind of recharge and maintain that resilience you were talking about? The first thing is modeling it. I think we could talk about taking care of yourself, self-care, wellness, like all of the buzzwords that we hear. Um, 
but if you're not modeling for the people that you're working with like it is void so even taking a step back from tfa to like my experience as an um as a teacher and a school leader i particularly think back to my first year as a teacher and i had an, an amazing year and i knew that if i continued to operate in that way the work wouldn't be sustainable so I was at school at 6.30 in the morning, like I was leaving school at like seven o'clock in the evening. Um, and not only that, the people that were around me were doing the exact same thing. And just context, when I taught in Memphis, I was at a turnaround school where they got rid of all of the staff in the school, hired a brand new principal. He handpicked every single person on his staff. And he hired some amazing people, like they were getting results and I was learning from them. So because I saw them doing that, I thought I should be doing that. I also realized that when I drove up to the school, my principal's truck was there before I got there. And when I left, his car was still there. So in my mind, I thought like, this is how we need to operate. But by December, as you can imagine, like I was worn out. Um, so I learned from that semester and from that year. And the second year, like I began to change things so that it wasn't like my first year. And I think one thing that I was taking away from that experience is the person who's first at the school and the person who's last to leave is the one who's working the hardest and getting the greatest results. Well, I had to learn how to actually like, let's work smart, <laughs> let's not work hard. Um, so my second year was a lot better. And then fast forward into my school leader experience, my first year as school leader, I was like, I want to be a role model for people that they understand that there is a perfect balance between work and there's a perfect balance between life. And as a school leader for six years, I have never been at school on the weekend to do any work. I have never done work at home on the weekend as a school leader. Like I was never at work beyond the first day of school, no earlier than 30 minutes before school started and typically not later than 30 minutes when school ended. And I was like that because like that was a boundary that I held for myself. But a part of that for me was modeling that for other people that like, I'm not doing it. So I don't expect you to do it. You're not going to get an award for being the first car in the parking lot. You're not getting an award for being the last car in the parking lot. You're getting a reward for doing great work. Um, so I think that's a part of modeling it. But, and another piece, when I became school leader, one of the pieces that I wanted to be true, which I'm so glad I was able to do it, was that the first day of PD was focused on us as people. I didn't want to talk about behavior management. I did not want to talk about unpacking any standard. I wanted everybody to truly understand how they as people were coming into this space, but also understanding the people that they were doing it with. So it's about learning each other's personality styles, learning each other's learning and leadership styles, um, we had a mental health therapist come in and talk to us about how are we taking care of ourselves when we're doing some of the most challenging work. Um, once a month, we had a mental health day where we allowed all of the staff and students to leave early. And it wasn't like we're leaving early because we're having PD. It's like we're leaving early because we want you to take these last three hours of this day. Go to your doctor's appointment. Go pick your kid up from school or go have lunch with your child at school. We really wanted to model like you have to take care of yourself. Yeah, so th those are just like a few ways. And even in my work with TFA, I think that's one thing that we really encourage. And I tell people working with adults is very different from working with students because adults are artists. Um, but at the end of the day, like I had to realize through my work, adults are people. So in the programming that we do, and I believe Matt, when you did it, we were largely virtual that year. We may have had one travel experience. 
But in the virtual space, one thing that we encourage when we first kick off the call is like, we recognize that everybody is coming to this space from various different outlooks and various different ways from various different conditions. So we want you to take care of yourself on this call. So if that means you hop in off your camera to nurse your baby, do that. If that's your dog running in the background, do that. If you're still in the classroom, tutoring kids, do that. So I think we model like, yes, you're here to learn and we want you to take care of yourself um, as well. And we provide opportunities when we're in person to do that as well. So when we are in person on the ground, it's not content from like eight o'clock to four o'clock each day. We're making time for you to just reflect on what you've experienced so far. We're making time for you to connect with people, not talking about the work of education. Um, and one thing that I'm really proud of that my team did last year um, was for the first time we hosted a school system leaders convening that was fully focused on taking care of themselves. Like it wasn't any like core content. It was like literally content around taking care of yourself. So we went to Austin, Texas at the Holdsworth, Holdsworth Center there. Uh, we opened up each day with some type of self-care activity, whether that was doing yoga um, on the boat dock, uh, whether that was doing a sound bath. Like, I was like, this is what our people need. Like, as you can imagine the last couple of years, like, with COVID, and I wouldn't even say post-COVID, I mean, I guess we kind of feel dealing with it. Um, it's been tough. And we realized that sometimes our leaders, particularly our senior leaders, aren't going to take time for themselves unless you do that for them. Um, so I think the biggest thing for me in like helping others do, others do that is like modeling it, but also naming what you're doing and why you're doing it. Jeffrey, I just, um, I really have to say, I appreciate what you're doing. Um, and um, I think it's very important what you're doing. And I feel like educators as um, a whole are nurturers and we take care of everyone else Everybody first else. Yep. before we take care of ourselves. And um, I'm, I, I fall into that. I was, when I was in um, different roles, I was always the first car there and the last car to leave. And I yep. worked on weekends and yep. I have been in a slow roll to a full on burnout um for for some time and matt met me probably when i hit my burnout um <laughs> and we just found each other at a time where i'm trying to repair um, and recuperate from that um, and so i'm learning the things that i that would have prevented the burnout yeah. you know but i'm learning it now and i will say i'm a i'm a hard nut to crack um, I tend to be a little bit stubborn and have to figure things out the hard way um, because I, I did have people along the way that did tell me, you know, you need to take time for yourself. You need to yeah. take care of yourself. But I had to learn it for myself. And yeah. but I appreciate that you specifically gave focus time and set aside time because leaders a lot of times, even even if they know it, they don't do it because mm -hmm. they put themselves as the last priority on the list. Um, and so with that and knowing that you've modeled it, how, and if this isn't too personal, how do yep. you recharge and maintain your own resilience? Uh, that's, that's not too personal. I can answer okay. that. And to your point, Kirsten, I also want to add to the previous question. Another way that I help educators recharge and maintain their resi resilience is by accountability. So one of the things that I did every year as a school leader at the beginning of the year, because we know like at the beginning of the year, everybody's fresh, everybody's excited, like there's no worries, um, is I get everybody to take two or three sticky notes. And the question that I ask them is when times are tough, 
what do you need to sustain yourself? So everybody write their name on that sticky note and then they write their responses. And anytime I see somebody like beginning to get like a little stress or getting a chance to, um, not getting a chance, but like getting a little burned out, like I always go back to that sticky note and I say, Kirsten, have you done this lately? So if you are chill and you're resilient and you're recharging by listening to Sarah Jakes Roberts podcast or talk, like, are you doing that? And particularly for the winter holiday season, when we gave them uh, winter gifts, I put every, like I made note of everybody's sticky notes um, on a document, but I gave everybody that sticky note back to say, we're at the halfway mark. How much have you leaned into it? And if not, what are you going to do to move forward? Um, and I named it to say too, I did that for myself and my team knew what I needed to be recharged um, and how I needed to maintain my resilience. So they also hold, held me accountable because teachers know when leaders are stressed. So they were like, Jeffrey, have you done this? Like what happened last night? Um, but in terms of things that I do personally, um, I have to remember that I'm Jeffrey. I think I enter a lot of spaces as Mr. View, but at the end of the day, I am Jeffrey. Um, then I have to also understand that what may have given me joy weeks ago or years ago may not be the exact same things that give me joy now and that is okay. So at this point in my life, um, some of the things that I do to recharge um, is cooking. Um, particularly growing up in the Black community, like cooking is like love. Um, it's where we gather, it's where connections are being made, um, it's where decisions are being made. And on Sundays after church, we will always go to my grandmother's house and like just have fun over food. And I also come from a family of cooks. And one thing that I made true for myself particularly when I became an educator was, I mean, as a young educator, like we're going to brunch on Saturdays and Sundays or like we're going to dinner and stuff. So we're really not cooking, but I love to cook. So Monday night was always my cook day for me because Monday is typically the day that people dread going to work. But for me, Monday is the day that I look forward to going to work because I knew when I got home, like I was going to invest um, in my therapy, which is cooking. I know Matt and I had some conversations about this. Um, I also love traveling. Um, so any chance I could get, um, like I travel and it doesn't have to be like out of the country. Like I can travel like an hour away to go to a winery because I love wine or I could spend, um, I could do a staycation in the city. Um, I enjoy spending time with my family and friends. Um, so I was in Memphis. I left Memphis in 2021. Um, and a part of my move from Memphis to Atlanta was because I needed to recharge and take care of myself. My family was in Eastern North Carolina. I was in Memphis. If I was driving, that was like a 13 hour drive. If I was flying, it was a very expensive flight. Um, and as we know, if I'm flying from Memphis to a rural area, I'm not flying into my hometown. I'm flying into the closest airport, which then means I need a rental car to actually drive further home. Um, so me moving to Atlanta was like me recharging and begin um, regrounding myself, like in my family and my friends. Um, and then more, most recently, um, three weeks ago, um, my partner and I got a dog. Um, and it, people are like, that's a lot of responsibility and blah, 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 blah. But I'm like, that is a way that like we both have just recommitted to like taking care of ourselves and like taking care of now, like the new addition to our family, like having somebody that I can share emotions too because now that I have a dog when it's time for me to log off the computer I'm logging off because I have an additional responsibility um, that's giving me joy 
And I think the last piece of that I, is I'm very reflective. Um, and it's very hard to let things get me down. Um, and I think that is a part of like my recharging resilience. So oftentimes people look at things as failure. And I don't think I've ever looked at anything in life as a failure. I've always looked at it around, looked at it as feedback for me to learn from this experience to show up better. Because if you're not growing, you're dead. So if I was showing up every day being perfect, like getting everything right, like how am I developing myself like as a person and leader? So I think that is also a part of my resilience, just like my orientation around um, this feedback for myself so that uh, I can be better. Well, first of all, not that we've said it's a prerequisite for this podcast, <laughs> but we do love dog lovers. <laughs> <laughs> and I love I have that a you. <laughs> oh, and I love that you have a dog. I have two uh, French bulldogs, and then we Aww. have a dog that adopted us that's um, part boxer, part pit bull. And okay. yeah, and we, yeah, so we, we're actually animal lovers. We also have cats, and yes, Ooh. it's like a regular animal farm in our house but um <laughs> but yeah um it's i i love that what you shared and how you shared uh that and um the ability and the responsibility to something other than yourself is is a great way to keep resilience um, um and it can be uh, both matt and i i know y'all love to cook um but matt and i like to garden and so we talk about gardening and um, during the winter months, I have to find another, another avenue. Like that keeps me going yeah. in the spring and the summer. Yeah. I just, I just put to rest my garden last weekend. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, um, just finding, finding those ways to, to, to grow something that's outside of yourself. That's not yep. necessarily related to your, your job every yeah. day. Um, but requires you to have a little bit of persistence and resilience. Um, Mm -hmm. Matt has way much more, way more luck with gardening than I do. I actually (laughs) have named myself the wishful gardener because (laughs) I plan a lot, but I don't have a lot of results and I keep doing it. (laughs) But, um, I really appreciate you sharing that, um, and how you have also modeled it, but you do it for yourself. Um, and I also like how you shared how you had to make a decision for yourself to move closer to family. Yep. And a, a lot of times we, we need to examine, are we in a place that we need to be that feeds our souls mm-hmm. or, um, are we needing to, to, you know, basically pick up, lift up those stakes and go somewhere else. And, yep. uh, and, uh, I did that about five years ago, move closer to family. Um, and so I understand sometimes those decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, that you have to make and and sometimes they're hard because sometimes when you pull up stakes and you move there's a lot of uh, financial implications yeah. that happen with that yeah. as well yeah. um, and so it's it's not an easy easy decision but in the end what's best for you and and your partner and you know and family too because we know that family isn't going to be here forever and so mm-hmm. we need to make decisions like that so thank you for sharing those things yeah, really appreciate it. I, I have to ask uh, before we close out, because you know, you know, I'm gonna ask because I'm always getting ideas. What was the last thing you cooked? <laughs> the last thing that I cooked was. So now I'm vegetarian. I'm not sure if I was vegetarian the last time we talked. Well, I'm pretty sure I was. Okay. I've been vegetarian for two and a half years now. Yeah. Um. So I made some vegan 
meatballs with marinara sauce with uh, mm-hmm. mashed potatoes and I made some pan fried cabbage, which is fairly mm-hmm. new for me. Like typically when I cook cabbage, I would do the boiled cabbage or like put it on the grill, but I tried um, pan fried cabbage that was really good. And after this call, I'm gonna try a sweet potato honey bun cake. Ooh, All this what? trending on social media. Like I've made a honey bun cake before, which is similar to a coffee cake. I think people use them interchangeably, um, but this person added a sweet potato to it to give it a different type of texture. So I'm gonna try that today. Yeah, that sounds delicious. Awesome. Speaking of which, um, if people want to find out more about you and learn more about what you do or see that sweet potato cake, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be on social media, where can they see that? Interestingly, I'm not on social media, which for me, that is a part of like my recharge and maintaining my resilience. Um, Yes. But you can find me on LinkedIn um, as my name, Jeffrey Ville Jr., um, you can also feel free to connect with me via email to learn about opportunities that we're doing. Um, my email is Jeffrey, my first name, dot Bill, my last name, at teachforamerica.org, which I encourage you to follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to email me because there are a lot of opportunities um, to be a part of amazing learning experiences um, that people don't know about. And literally the only thing you have to do is follow me to like figure out what those are. And it's not just TFA specific. I think some people think all of the programs that Teach for America put on are only for alumni, but a lot of our programs are for non-alumni as well, and they are free. Um, So if you want to learn about um, more of the work, feel free to add me on LinkedIn or send me an email. Yes, and also as a non-TFA alum, I can vouch it was totally free and it was totally awesome. Jeffrey, thank you again for joining us today. It was a true pleasure. Um, I hope our listeners enjoyed this chat as much as we did. Um, We will share uh, Jeffrey's email and his LinkedIn on our show notes. Thank you all so much for the invite and thank you for creating the space uh, for myself and others to benefit. Welcome to another installment of Living in Beta Mode. I'm your co-host, Matt Kasten, and today I want to share with our listeners some vocabulary, or should I say, flocabulary. As K-12 educators and school leaders, we know how integral mastery of vocabulary is to a student's success and their sense of growth and progress. Students will struggle to learn content that they can't name. And so, I want to introduce this cool tech tool teachers schools and districts can use in their classroom to enhance their students exposure to vocabulary. With my mind on spring testing, this winter could be the perfect time to introduce flocabulary into your classrooms. So what is flocabulary? It's great for brain breaks, before class warm-ups and bell ringers, it could be an end-of-class review, or could be used to add variety to a lesson. Flocabulary is a digital engagement platform that features videos, quizzes, rhyming games, and a diagnostics dashboard so teachers can monitor student progress and provide real-time feedback to individual students. The lesson sequence is as follows. First, your students watch a video where the vocabulary words are used followed by vocabulary cards where students get to write or draw and put into their own language what the words mean to them. Then there's a vocabulary game where students get to test their word knowledge. Next is a read and respond where students practice reading passages and answer text-dependent questions. 
This is followed by a quiz. Finally, there's a lyric lab where students demonstrate mastery through rhyme writing. <laughs> Say that two times fast. So all these elements can be used separately or as one lesson. Pretty cool. According to a 2022 study out of the University of Illinois that looked at the relationship between vocabulary and word learning, results indicate that vocabulary knowledge is significantly correlated with GPA and students' ability to learn words in a limited amount of time. Students with higher vocabulary scores earn higher gain scores in GPA, according to the study, which is called Vocabulary and Academic Success in University Undergraduate Students, and the authors are Sandra Irvin and Katherine Blankenship. Now, we know that success in college and in the workplace starts with the success in grade school. We also know that vocabulary is fundamental, not just to ELA, but to social studies, math, and the sciences. For teachers, Vocabulary Suite is available for $11.50 a month, but they offer special packages for schools and for school districts. Schools and districts districts will have access to over 1,300 videos, weekly current event lessons, and printable lesson resources. Vocabulary is also Google Classroom compatible and offers performance dashboards at the district level. So, if you're interested in incorporating an easy, fun way to improve your students' exposure to vocabulary, check out Flocabulary at flocabulary.com. And that's spelled F-L-O-C-A-B-U-L-A-R-Y. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. Join us for our next episode to be released on uh, November 2nd. Please share your thoughts and ideas with us on our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at the Bulldog EDU. You can also follow Matt on Instagram at CastIron or on X, formerly Twitter, at Matthew Caston. And Kirsten on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter, at TeachKiwi or on Facebook book or LinkedIn as Kirsten Wilson. We appreciate you listening to the fourth episode of season four of the Bulldog Educator. Tune in in two weeks from now for the next episode. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. Our podcast is available on most podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to the Bulldog Educator.